0: Isn't it a creation of Spokane, Father's Day? That's what I thought. It's always dangerous saying things like, as not a native Spokaneite, you know, saying things like that. But it was invented here in Spokane. So of all people, we should celebrate Father's Day. Hopefully that you're planning on doing something to honor your dad this afternoon. And I want to say thank you to all of those who are spiritually Fathering others, spiritually uh, pointing others to Christ. And it's a day we can uh, celebrate our Father, our Heavenly Father, uh, as we've sung today already. His goodness and His grace to us. He has given us everything. Uh, I hope this morning finds you trusting in the goodness of your Father, your Heavenly Father, and celebrating Him. We're in Acts chapter 26 this morning. Actually, we're going to begin we're taking a big chunk of scripture today but it 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 uh doesn't it's not as big as it seems uh acts chapter 26 I'm actually going to start in acts chapter 25 verse number 23 okay so acts chapter 25 verse 23 if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word as we do every week we honor God's word by standing as we read acts chapter 25 starting in verse 23, and I'm going to read all the way through uh, chapter 26, okay? So 25, verse 23 through uh, chapter 26. Look at it there, follow along as I read. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him, but I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Paul says, I consider myself fortunate That is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord answered, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. it was called the trial of the century o j simpson famous running back was on trial for killing his wife and family friend if you weren't alive in the 90s it's hard for you to imagine this is before internet this is before social media this is, this is before everybody was connected constantly all the time. The trial of O.J. Simpson gripped our entire nation. Millions and millions of people watched the trial. Listening to the evidence, weighing the arguments. I, I remember, it was mid-90s, right? I was in school. Hopefully that doesn't make any of you feel too old. I was in high school, and I remember our classes stopped right in the middle of the day, and they turned on the television in all of the classrooms for us to sit and listen to the verdict. Not guilty. It was it was an incredible uh, day, an incredible moment. Trials fascinate us, don't they? Media following, again, the arguments, the evidence, the, the balance of life and death, guilt and innocence, the courtroom of public opinion, TV shows, movies have been built around the courtroom, the trial, and fascinate us. The book of Acts ends with a series of trials, and I dare say trials of far more significance than the trial of O.J. Simpson or any other trial that we've seen. I think it's incredible and important that the book of Acts ends, really, culminates With this series of trials given, Paul stands first in chapter 23. Jeremy looked at it last week. He stands first before the Sanhedrin, the council of the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he tells them that he's on trial that day for the hope of the resurrection. This causes them to argue with one another. So much so that the Roman Tribune has to step in again and rescue Paul. Because he's going to be torn to pieces if he doesn't. Chapter 23 goes on to tell us that the Jews want to kill Paul and they have a plan. They've hatched a plan, a plot, to ambush Paul. The Roman Tribune hears about this plot from Paul's nephew. Paul has a nephew, don't know if you knew that or not, but Paul has a nephew that hears about this plot and alar- or, uh, uh, alerts the Roman Tribune. And the Roman Tribune sends Paul with heavy guard by night to the town of Caesarea. Caesarea is an important city for the book of Acts. This is where Philip ended up in his evangelistic mission. This is where Peter was at when he preached to Cornelius. Caesarea is an important place. And Paul ends up in Caesarea. There at Caesarea, Herod the Great had built a summer palace right there on the coast of Israel. He had built a port city, a place where he would go and relax in the summer where it was cooler. And Paul is brought to Caesarea where the Roman governor lives, Felix. And there before Felix... Paul is brought to trial. Chapter 24 details that experience for Paul. He's before Felix there at Caesarea. And again, here in verse 14, if you want to look at it there, verse 14 in chapter 24, Paul is accused before Felix, and he says, This one thing I confess. This is all I have to confess to you. This I confess. Verse 14 that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written to the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, he says. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Here it is again. Paul, standing trial before Felix the governor, he, he says he is on trial for this one thing. He says, this is all I can confess to you, that I have the same hope of the Jews, that there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. I stand trial for the resurrection. Paul is kept there by Felix. I don't know if you caught that, if you were reading through it this week, but Paul is kept there at Caesarea Maritima by Felix for two years. Two whole years he is imprisoned there at Caesarea. And finally, the governor switches hands, the governorship switches hands. It goes from Felix to a man named Festus. Festus, upon receiving his post as governor, he makes quick work. He brings Paul before him to see what he must do. The Jews seek an opportunity again to kill Paul, trying to trick Festus into bringing him to Jerusalem again. Paul, aware of the Jews plotting, appeals to Caesar. He says, no, you can't can't try me anymore. I, I appeal to Caesar. And so Festus says to Caesar, then you must go. Festus, though, is He's a little befuddled. He's a little confused. I don't have anything to accuse this guy of. He's not done anything wrong. He's not done anything worthy of imprisonment or death. I'm going to send him to Caesar, but I don't have anything to accuse him of. That's embarrassing. As a government official sending a prisoner all the way to Caesar, and yet there are no accusations. That's not going to look good. And so he uses King Agrippa, the appearance of King Agrippa. King Agrippa the son of the man in chapter 12. Remember the Herod in chapter 12 who was eaten of worms. He had killed James and imprisoned Peter. This is his son, the king. And he comes to Caesarea and Festus sees as, as an opportunity. Maybe Agrippa can help me. Maybe Agrippa can help me figure out what to write so that I can send Paul to Caesar. And that's where we read. Paul is brought before Agrippa the second, And there he stands trial again. And it's in that trial that he says, verse 6, look at it, verse 6 of chapter 26. And now he says, I stand here on trial because, again, of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day, He says, and for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Again, Paul stands trial on this one accusation. He believes in the resurrection of the dead. Jeremy talked about resurrection last week, and uh, it's what shapes this entire text. And so we must talk about resurrection again this week. I'm going to give you three points today, and I'm going to work at not being as long as I normally am. We'll see how that actually works out. Three points for us today. I think, again, I think it's really important that Acts, as it culminates, as it closes, it focuses on these series of trials, trials of the Apostle Paul and his hope in the resurrection. This is telling you something about the story and the point of the book of Acts. As the book of Acts comes to its end, the resurrection of Jesus resurrection of Jesus is everything. Three points for you today on resurrection, if you are taking notes. Point number one is this. We see this here clearly in the text. The resurrection guarantees, the resurrection guarantees the consolation of God's people. The resurrection guarantees the consolation of God's people. Do you know what consolation means? People people get upset because we use big words. We have to use important words, okay? Important and, and, and big words. Consolation is a very important word for you to understand. Consolation is the idea of comfort After great disappointment, you are consoled. You know what consoled means? God's people have great consolation because of the resurrection. The resurrection is the consolation of God's people. It guarantees the consolation of God's people. And this has been for all ages. The resurrection is not just a New Testament teaching. The resurrection is not a teaching or a doctrine only of the New Testament. The resurrection is a doctrine, is a teaching of the Old Testament. The resurrection has been the hope, the consolation for God's people over all the ages. It's not just a New Testament teaching, it's an Old Testament doctrine. Daniel 12 explicitly tells us this. Jeremy read it last week. Those who hope in God will be raised to everlasting life. Daniel says that. And those who are not hoping in God will be raised to. To everlasting shame and contempt. Explicitly stated in Daniel chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Do you remember Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes is the book of Solomon where he considers life. I always say, don't read Ecclesiastes if you're feeling really discouraged, okay? If you're feeling really discouraged, don't read the book of Ecclesiastes, just skip to the very end of it, because that's where the punchline is. Ecclesiastes is not really meant to be broken up into little sections, it's one, one entire point. Solomon says, I've considered life, and life is vanity. He says, you know Why? Because if I am wise, that is, if I live by God's commandments, and if I, if I seek God in my life, guess where it gets me? I end up dead. And if I live for myself, and I, if I just enjoy life, and if, if I gain wealth for myself, guess where I end up? Dead. We both end up dead. The wise and the fool... The rich and the poor, we all end up dead. Death comes for us all, and he says, What's the point? Have you ever had your have you ever had your own thoughts on that? I mean, if we all just end up dead, then what's the point? I might as well just live life for all I can get out of it. Because you just end up dead anyway. This is Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't know if you saw this in the news, but he was asked recently about his views of heaven. And he was recounting a conversation he had with, with the esteemed citizen, Howard Stern. Howard Stern asked him, Arnold, what do you think of heaven? You talk about two men having a conversation that's above their, you know, you're a little out of your depth there, guys. Howard Stern asked Arnold Schwarzenegger, what do you think of heaven? He says, it's a fantasy. It's just what people tell themselves to give themselves comfort in life. He says, no, when we die, that's it. We're six feet under, that's it. That's the end of the story. He said, heaven, heaven is just a place we put up in our mind, we make it up in our mind, and we imagine our friends there. That's all heaven is. It's just to get us through. Well, Arnold Schwarzenegger would be right, except for the resurrection. And that's Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 says this. Here's the end of the matter. Everything's been heard. Here's the end of it. Fear God and keep his commandments. For God will judge every deed, whether evil or good, whether good or evil, he will judge every deed. So fear God and keep his commandments. See, that, that's implicitly pointing to this reality that there is a life after this one. Death is not the end of the story. And this was the hope of the faithful Jew. The faithful Israelite, the faithful Jew. Why? Because he knew that God would indeed reward the faithful, that God would indeed reward his people. The oppressors are not going to win, the wicked are not going to win. Life has a deeper meaning, and there is judgment to come. This is what Paul says. Look at it there again in chapter 24, verse 14. I just read it to you. But he says this, I confess to you that according to the way, he says, which they, the Jews, call a sect. He says, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Right? In the Old Testament is what he's saying. Having a hope in God, he says, which these men themselves accept. He he points to the Jewish accuser. He says, these men have the same hope. These men have that same hope that I have. What is that hope? That there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. That's the same, joke the people, the same hope the Jewish people have. He says, I have that same hope. Resurrection was the hope of every faithful Israelite. Resurrection was also the hope of the nation of Israel. For, for Easter this year, we talked about Ezekiel 37. We looked at that promise of resurrection, the promise of the resurrection of God's people, that God would restore them. Amos 9 points again to this resurrection, that the house of David, the tent of David, will be raised up. There will be a resurrection, a restoration for God's people, it's synonymous. This idea of resurrection for the, for the Jew is synonymous with the restoration of Israel's kingdom. Which again, in Acts, remember Acts chapter one? This is what the disciples are hoping for, the restoration of God's kingdom. Are you going to restore your kingdom at this time? He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, right? Just go preach the gospel, he says. This resurrection... This restoration of Israel's kingdom, the the messianic age, the age of God's king and God's kingdom is described in Isaiah 61. Do you remember that passage, Isaiah 61? In the resurrection, in the messianic age, the Messiah will cause his people to be raised up And the lame will be healed. The blind will receive their sight. The oil of gladness. The oil of gladness will flow instead of mourning. The captives will be freed. The wine will flow from the hills. God's people will experience resurrection. Paul says, I have the same hope you have in this restoration. I have the same hope you have that there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. I have that same hope, but now, he says, I'm here to tell you our hope, Israel, our hope now has a name. I have that same hope you have, In the resurrection, I have that same hope you have in the restoration of God's kingdom, but that hope now has a name, and that name is Jesus. Our hope is Jesus. He is the Christ, the Messiah, who himself has been raised from the dead. And that is the peace that Israel missed. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the restoration of God's kingdom. What they did not... Realized what they failed to recognize was that all of this would be accomplished in the resurrection of their Messiah. The teaching of Isaiah 53 in Psalm 16, which we use for our liturgy. Psalm 22 points to it as well. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise of resurrection. Jesus is the fulfillment of that Old Testament expectation. He has established in his name the kingdom of God. Now, now here's here's such an important point. The Jewish people believed in a resurrection of the just and the unjust. But think about this for a moment. They they believed in the resurrection. They believed that God would restore his people. But think about it for a moment. In that day, who will be found righteous? Righteous in the resurrection of the dead, who will be found righteous? Scripture tells us, not one. Not one. If God judges every deed, whether evil or good, if God judges every deed, how would you fare? How would you do? How would I do? No one would be counted righteous. I want you to hear this. Your your legacy, your legacy, the fruit of your life. Your, your life product brought before God, apart from the work of Christ, what would your life show? Love for God, complete devotion to God, worship of God, love of others. Is that what your life would show? Your life work, your legacy brought before God, apart from the righteousness of Christ, would be a giant stinking dunghill. That's what it would be, as would mine. And if you're here thinking, well, you know, I don't think I've done too bad, I would argue you're probably lost not understanding the righteousness that you must be found in on that day, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you will not be accepted before God. Your righteousness, your works, your life, your legacy, your product is nothing but a putrefying trash heap before God. That's it. So the resurrection really isn't our consolation if we are not found in Christ. His righteousness. Our hope, our consolation As we sang just a minute ago, my one defense, my righteousness, right? Apart from Jesus, I have nothing. Is that your testimony this morning? See, Jesus comes. The people of Israel were hoping for a restoration of the kingdom. They were wanting to see the wine flow down from the hills that promise of the kingdom, God was going to bless his people, Jesus comes and he says, oh, you want wine? You want wine? I can take water and make it into wine. You, you want food? You want food? You want me to fill your bellies? I can make food out of nothing. You want, you want the blind to see? I can do that. You want the lame to walk? I can do that. You want the kingdom? I'm bringing it for you. But what you need, more than anything else, you want the curse of sin to be reversed. So I I can take care of all the effects of the curse. But you want the curse to be reversed? We've got to do away with sin. And Jesus took sin that was not his own and put it on himself. And died for the sin of his people. But he didn't stay dead, did he? He rose from the dead. Defeating sin having victory over the grave. And now those who trust in Jesus have hope. We have consolation. This life is not all there is. We have a hope in the life to come, the life that Jesus has secured for us and that he even now gives to us. That's our hope. That's our consolation. Are you despairing in your life today? Are you discouraged in your life today? In the trials and the discouragements and the darkness of this life, look to the resurrection. That's your life. That's your truth. That's your hope. Our hope and consolation is guaranteed because of Christ's resurrection. Do you have that hope today? When you think about that day of judgment, when you think about death? Do you have that hope, that confidence this morning? I would encourage you to look to Jesus and his righteousness. I, I believe I talk to many people, even in this room today, who are afraid of death. Those who are in Christ have no reason to fear death. Look to Jesus. If you, if you think about death and it causes you to tremble, your salvation can be found only in Jesus and his righteousness, his resurrection. But the opposite of hope is despair. Despair. So if the resurrection is the consolation or the hope or the comfort for God's people, and has been for all the ages, if the resurrection is hope for God's people, secondly, the resurrection not only guarantees the hope of God's people, guarantees their consolation, it also proves the condemnation of the wicked. The resurrection proves that the condemnation, the judgment of the wicked is coming. The condemnation of the wicked is sure. It is coming. No one is getting away with anything. No one. This text points us to that reality by the people that actually stand in judgment of Paul. This is the irony of these scenes. The irony of these scenes. The men and women who put Paul on trial are actually the ones who are being tried. You, you thought it was nice, as you were reading through that, you thought it was nice that Felix brought his wife, Drusilla... And that Agrippa involved Bernice in these little trials. Isn't that nice Felix brought Drusilla? Do you know who Drusilla is? you know who Felix is? Drusilla is the sister of Herod Agrippa II. He's actually, she's actually the sister of the man we're going to see in chapter 26. Felix is her third husband. She's only 19 years old when Acts chapter 24 takes place. She's 19. She was married by Felix at the age of 16. There's a lot of historic information on Felix. That's why we know all these things. Drusilla married Felix at the age of 16. Felix stole her from her second husband, a lower government official. Drusilla is a debauched woman, as was her brother. Felix was a vicious, ruthless ruler. Not gracious, not kind, ruthless. Look there at verse 24 of chapter 24. I want you to see what happens. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish herself. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. Look at at what verse 25 says. Look at what Paul does. He comes and stands before Felix and his wife Drusilla. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. Felix is afraid. So Paul comes and stands before Felix and Drusilla. And he reasons with Felix and Drusilla about righteousness, about self-control, and about the coming judgment. How do you think that hit them in their current state of life? Well, you see how it hit Felix. Felix was afraid. And so Felix sends Paul away immediately. Felix was afraid and sends him away. Agrippa the second. With his significant other Bernice, you see this? Verse twenty three. Look at verse twenty three of chapter twenty five. Turn there, we, we read it at the very beginning. On the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. I mean this this is a big to do. All the trumpets are blowing, all the flags are waving, and all the prominent men of the city, the military tribunes. I mean, this is a big to-do, and they bring this little insignificant guy in chains, this puny little weak guy, out to try him. So you have, this is on purpose here, you have this pomp and circumstance, right? This pomp and, and display of power, standing in judgment of little Paul in chains. You know who Agrippa and Bernice are? Agrippa is the son, again, of Agrippa, the one that killed James and imprisoned Peter. You know who Bernice is? Bernice is his sister. They lived in an incestuous relationship, debauched family, morally reprehensible. Bernice would go on to be the mistress of Titus. Titus, that great Roman who came and destroyed the temple of Jerusalem. These people are powerful, and they're wicked. And they stand in judgment of Paul, the man in chains. But but look at what Paul says at the very end of this trial. Verse 25, look at it, verse 25 of, of chapter 26. Festus accuses him of being out of his mind, but he says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words for the king knows about these things and to him I speak boldly for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice for this has not been done in a corner. This has been open. This has been obvious for everyone to see. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. I know you know this is true. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? You think you're going to persuade me in just such such a short time? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. What is Paul saying there? Paul's saying, for all your pomp and all of your greatness, I would, I would give anything for you to be in my place instead, except for these chains. Why? Because the man in chains had the hope of the resurrection. And the men who sit on the throne and try Paul, their judgment is sure. The position of Agrippa and Bernice and Felix and Drusilla is not to be envied. Do you you ever find yourself envying the world and all of its glory, and all of its greatness. You ever find yourself, if you're you're there and you say, no, I never do, then you're lying, okay? So, So we have this problem. We look around us at the world, we look around at all that is defined as greatness and goodness, and we look around at the world, and we begin envying the station of those who are lost. And we fear them even. We think a lot of what they think about us. This is why we fail to speak up. What are they going to think of me? I wonder what they'll think of me if I tell them the truth. They might not want anything to do with me anymore. Why would we fear those who are coming under judgment? Why would we fear those whose judgment is sure? Why would we envy the rich and the famous? Why would we want their position? Paul saying, "I wouldn't have your position, Agrippa, for anything. I'd rather be standing where I am, and I wish you were standing where I am. I wish we could. I wish we could bring you down off that throne, and you could stand here where I am, except for these chains." He says, "Those who are trying Paul are going to be judged." And here's the thing. They know it. That's why Felix is afraid. And that is what Paul tells Agrippa. Agrippa, I know you know this. It wasn't done in secret. I know you believe, Agrippa. This, again, shows us, we've talked about this before, the three parts of faith. First part of faith is knowing. Knowing the truth. It's important to know the truth, but you've got to go beyond that. You've got to be convinced of it. You've got to agree that it is in fact true. But that's not enough either. You've got to go to embracing it. And actually building your life on it. That's what saving faith is. Conviction is not salvation. Conviction is not salvation. There is often where we are convicted of something, but we are not embracing something by faith. Embracing a truth by faith. Felix is convinced, that's why he's afraid. Agrippa believes, but he's not saved. The truth of the resurrection should shape our life. The truth of who we are in Christ is what we should build our life upon. And, and here's the thing, here's the truth. Those who you speak to know that their judgment is coming. All of them know it. And that, I don't know if you, if you can discern this as you look at the world, that is why they turn up the volume on their sin. That's why they turn up the volume because they're trying to drown out the conscience that accuses them constantly. They're trying to deaden that reality that their judgment's coming. The louder the music, the louder the party, the more ardent or zealous the cause, right? The greater the sin do you know why gay parades exist? Because they know their judgment's coming. So, so they've got to be loud and proud, and they must demand that you be loud and proud with them to, to somehow ease their conscience. So don't get angry at the parade. Be broken for them. Can you, as Paul say? I wish that you were with me. Or do you say, I can't wait till they get what's coming to them. See, that's, that's not actually the Christian response. Because if I stood before God apart from Christ, I would be judged just as they are. Have you received grace? Then you, with Paul, should desire that all men everywhere would repent, Right? Even those wicked in our midst, they're loud and proud because their judgment's coming. Paul himself was convinced before he was saved. Paul himself, you see this in chapter 26, verse 14. Jesus says to him, Jesus appears to him and and Paul says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it, Paul? It's hard for you to kick against that prodding influence, what you know to be true. It's hard. Why was Paul so zealous in his persecution? Because inside he knew that, that this truth of Jesus was in fact the truth. I'm going to go and wipe them out. Why? Because he's trying to flee from the truth. And Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? You're not going to win, Paul. So Jesus rescues him from his path and sets him on a new course. A course of one that proclaims the truth of the resurrection. You say, well, how, how do I know that resurrection is true? Did you know that three times in the book of Acts, three times, the conversion of Paul is recounted? Three times. In the book of Acts, the conversion of Paul is recounted. Why? Why is that such a, a big deal? Because his conversion, get this, his conversion proves the veracity of the resurrection. Paul was the greatest persecutor of the church, of the way. And now he's the one standing on trial for his hope in the resurrection. How do you explain that transformation? The only way to explain it is that the resurrected Christ himself met Paul on the way. That's the only only way you can explain it. That's why it shows up three times in the book of Acts. Paul's transformation proves the truth of the resurrection and i love his words in chapter 26 verse 8 why is it thought incredible that god raises the dead are you here this morning and you you find it hard to believe you find it hard to believe that jesus rose from the dead why is it thought incredible why is it thought unable to be given credit that god would raise the dead The resurrection guarantees the hope of God's people, the consolation of God's people. It guarantees our consolation. It proves the condemnation of the wicked is coming. And third, the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection, shapes our mission. The truth of the resurrection shapes Our commission. Did you know you've been commissioned this morning? If you are a follower of Christ, you've been commissioned. You've been given a mission. Do you know what your purpose is? Do you know what you're to do with your life? The resurrection shapes our commission. Look at it, 26 verse 16 26, verse 16. This is the Lord Jesus commissioning Paul. Verse 16 of chapter 26. He says, rise up, stand on your feet, Paul. I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant And witness to the things in which you have seen me. And to those in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. To whom I am sending you. To open their eyes. So that they may turn from darkness to light. And get this. From the power of Satan to God. Paul I'm sending you to turn them from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He tells Paul, Paul, I'm sending you to preach, to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles so that they would turn from their sin, turn from Satan to God, the power of Satan to God and receive forgiveness of sins and find a place within my people. That's what he gives Paul to do. And this struck me for the first time ever in my life. It struck me this week as I was reading through this. Paul is commissioned by the resurrected Christ himself. The resurrected Christ appears to Paul and is the one who gives him his mission, gives him his duty. The resurrected Christ commissions Paul and and this is what struck me, he commissions us as well. Matthew 28 All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Who says that? The resurrected Christ says that. So he says all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey whatever I've commanded you. The resurrected Christ commissions Paul and he commissions us. The resurrected Christ comforts Paul. We didn't look at this chapter. It was in chapter 23. Listen to what Acts 23 verse 11 says. This is right after the scene with the council, the Sanhedrin. The following night, I thought these words were amazing. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul. And said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Later on, Paul testifies that he has the comfort that comes from God. The resurrected Christ is the one who comforts Paul and the resurrected Christ is the one who comforts us. Again, Matthew 28. What does he say? All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go you therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey whatever I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you know why we lack boldness? I think we lack confidence because often. We lack sight of the resurrected Christ who is with us. It's the resurrection that gives us that confidence, that boldness. It's our source of boldness, confidence. Take courage. I'm with you. The resurrected Christ The resurrected Christ is the one who raised to proclaim light to the peoples, calling all men to repentance. You see this in chapter 26, verse number 23. Paul says, I... I, Testify both to small and great, saying nothing both the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And then verse 23, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. The resurrected Christ proclaims light to his people, calling men to repent this was the content of Paul's message. See, the, the hope of the resurrection for God's people, the fact that the resurrection is the hope and the consolation of God's people also serves to show us that it is the, the warning to those outside of Christ that their judgment is coming. And so then it sh- serves to shape, give us confidence in our mission give us comfort in our mission, but it it shows us what we're to do in our mission, and that's to call men from the darkness to turn from their sin, to repent of their sin, and to put their hope in that same resurrection, in that same Christ who has died and has been raised. That's our message. Are you faithful in proclaiming the resurrection? That's a, that's a easy, it's a, like a low hanging fruit question, right? We say, no, we're not faithful. I'm not as faithful as I should be in that. Can I encourage you this morning? The resurrected Christ has commissioned us. He has promised to go with us. And he himself has died and been raised to call men, wicked men to repentance and faith and that's what we are to do that's our mission do you have hope in the resurrection this morning I pray that the message this morning finds you hoping in Christ's resurrection and being encouraged that our mission will not fail Christ will save go forth boldly, hoping in the resurrection, proclaiming the resurrection. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this trial scene, what it teaches us about where our hope should be and about the content of our message. I pray that we would not be satisfied with a lesser or truncated gospel message but that we would be bold in speaking of the resurrection which guarantees our consolation and we're happy of we're happy for that we're glad of that but it also speaks of the condemnation the sure condemnation of the wicked i pray that you would give us compassion for them for others in our life I pray for those who are here this morning I pray God for those who are listening this morning and they are not in your son Christ and even now you are convicting them I pray that they would not flee from conviction and not run away but they would finally give up humble them they would find their salvation in the resurrected Christ, that you would transform them, make them like Paul, your servants, your people, to carry forth the message of the resurrection to those who need to hear it. We thank you for your word. I pray that you would be exalted in our hearts as we go this morning. For all this in your name, amen.